0: Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew's Gospel, the twenty-eighth chapter. The last five verses that we're going to do—chapter twenty-eight, verses sixteen through twenty. The last five verses that Matthew leaves with us, and we see here Jesus meeting his disciples in Galilee and appointing or charging them in this in these verses to go and make disciples. And you think about—we get we get so focused and and caught up with in a positive way with Easter, and with the resurrection, which is the the basis, the foundation for our Christian beliefs, it's everything to us, and we kind of tend to, or I have, I know, we kind of tend to forget about, you know, Jesus died, He rose again, yes, but there was a, a short time when He was here on earth, before He went into heaven, physically, with His with his disciples, and uh, we don't know the time frame with, with Matthew's gospel here, of when these few verses happened, but they're the time between the crucifixion and when he he went to heaven. No part of the Bible, no other part of the Bible, except maybe the book of Romans, has done more to give Christians the vision of worldwide church than these five verses here. No other part of the Bible has given the command to go. Not to sit, but to go and make disciples of all nations. No other part of of the Bible. And you think about Jesus as the Jewish rabbi. Daryl's got the map up here. I forgot my pointer, but that's okay. um, Leading his disciples all throughout, all throughout the countryside. There, the twelve, and which has now turned to eleven, and doing that. And how this, how this picture with this small group. We know it with four or five thousand at the time. Thank you, sir. We know at times he had four or five thousand. But at this time, just the small group leading them throughout the countryside, doing, doing the work, doing, doing missions, telling people about telling people the gospel. Jesus himself is the gospel, and how this contrasts with, if you look in, in the book of Acts, the first five, six, seven chapters, what's happening in the church, the church just explodes. For those of you that were here last Sunday and saw the uh, The video that Sean had put up about the Twitter, like if there was Twitter back in those days and the people tweeting, if you remember how the followers, it kept going fewer and fewer and fewer right to the time of the crucifixion. After the crucifixion, when the one that got me up there was Mary, when she came to the tomb and her tweet just said, speechless, and all of a sudden it just started growing and growing and growing, and it just, just explodes, because as a Christian, how can we set and not go share the joy and tell what we have and what what is going on? A couple of things I want to share with you about, about missions, about world missions. There are about six and a half to seven billion people in the world today. Six and a half to seven billion. Two billion, with a B, billion, are unreached or lost people groups. Two billion. That is, my math, that is approximately 30, 25, 30% lost. Lost people groups that do not know the Lord. In Yemen, some of you know Yemen is one of the countries on the Arabian Peninsula, Saudi Arabia, Oman. In Yemen, there are, in northern Yemen, there are 8 million, approximately 8 million people. They estimate, and this is an estimation, they said it's probably a liberal estimation at that, that there are 20 to 30 Christians in northern Yemen. 20 to 30 Christians in northern Yemen. And looking at these verses in Matthew, this charge that Christ gives us, skipping ahead a little bit to verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples. How can the church not... How can that not make the church... How can that, how can that not stir you? How can that not get us to go? The other thing, the biggest thing, evangelical Christians, for every $100 that we make... Nationwide in the United There's no mistake that God has made the United States the richest country that has ever been on. We are the richest country that has ever existed on the face of the earth. For every one hundred dollars that evangelical Christians make, less than a nickel, less than five cents is spent on global missions. Pretty daunting, isn't it, if you think about that. Stand with me if you will, to Matt and with Matthew twenty eight. We're gonna read the, the text. The Great Commission, most of your Bibles probably say. Verses sixteen through twenty. let's pray. Dear Father God, thank you so much for your word, for your truth. Thank you that we know, dear Lord, you are sovereign over all. You can complete your task of missions without any help from us or anyone else, dear Lord. We know this very well. You are sovereign it is all under your power and authority. You give us this task because you love us and want to see us grow more in the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, dear Lord. I just pray that as a Community of believers, a body of Christ, that we would embrace this. That you have put this and every other church in place for your glory and for your honor and for just basically for you, dear Lord. It is our job. Our, all our desire should be to worship you, to honor you, to glorify you. And I pray that you'd help us. Help us to do that. Help us to make less and less and less of ourselves in our things and more and more and more of you, dear Lord. Thank you so much for your blessings. Be with us today as we go through your word. During the preaching time, Sunday school, everything would just glorify you. And the remainder of the day, dear Lord, that our speech and our talk would be centered around you. I know sometimes we get so focused on worldly things and the stuff going on in our life. Just help us to keep our focus central to you and to the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. Matthew's gospel, you'll notice Matthew differs a little bit from the other three, Mark, Luke, and John. The other gospels. The twelve have now become eleven because obviously you know what happened with Judas. He went out and committed suicide, killed himself. And we see that In obedience to to Jesus' words, what he says, if you go up to verse 10 in the same chapter, chapter 28, this is when the women meet Jesus at the tomb. Look at verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, talking to the women at this time, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So that's where we get the part down in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee. The other Gospels, Mark, Luke, and John, have Jesus' appearances mostly in Judea. I'll show you right here. Right here is Jerusalem. This area, here's the Dead Sea. This is Judea. You see that there? Samaria is where the woman at the well. Galilee is the area up here, around the, the Sea of Galilee. Okay? The other Gospels have Jesus' appearances mostly around here. A huge part of Christ's ministry was done up in Galilee. A very, very large portion of it. Matthew touches almost completely on Jesus' ministry up in Galilee. So it's no wonder these last verses, he tells them to go into Galilee. Because that's where most of it was. If you notice, some of you might have maps of Christ's ministry in the back of your Bible. I've looked at a couple of them. The few that I've seen, they have about 25 events on the map that they show. 17 of the 25 took place in Galilee. So most of Jesus, a lot of Jesus' ministry, most of it took place up there in Galilee. Why do you think Jesus... Keep in mind, last week we celebrated Easter. The crucifixion took place right down here in Jerusalem. That's where the crucifixion was. So that's why we see up in verse 10, He told the women, Do not be afraid. Tell my brothers to meet me in Galilee. Why do you think He directed them back to Galilee. What would have been the point of telling them? I mean, it's a it's a pretty good ways and you think about in those days, of course, all done on foot. So he directed them back up to Galilee. One reason possibly to show his disciples, his followers that the task of the risen Christ, keep in mind, he is risen now. He has conquered death and is risen and that and the task that he assigns to his followers is continuous with his ministry on earth, leading, guiding, directing, and he did most of this, most of this with the twelve, now the eleven. You know, and it just grew from there, possibly to get him up to Galilee to show them, to keep things in step with what he was doing, and that's what we're supposed to do: model our lives after what Christ modeled to us. Our ministry should look like Jesus' ministry. Our life. Should look like Jesus' life. So we see in verse sixteen, he directed them back to Galilee. Now the last part of that verse, very interesting, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. We are not told what mountain this was. You can see in this kind of a relief map, here. You can see very mountainous up in this up in this area. A lot of mountains. To the mountain, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. We're not told what this mountain is, but keep in mind, the disciples, very neat here, just practical things from the Bible, the disciples would have been very familiar with Galilee. Very familiar. They were there, a huge part of their life with Christ. They knew exactly, exactly where to go. Where Christ had directed them to. It was no problem for them to appear or to go to this mountain where Christ had directed them. This is, you can see right now, the crux. Jesus is is laying the foundation bringing the disciples to Him, bringing the disciples to Him, and He's going going to go on teaching the rest of the end of Matthew here. Verse 17, And when they saw Him, they worshipped, but some doubted. You first see this worship, if you look up in your Bible, up in verse 9, chapter 28, just a little ways up there, in verse 9, And behold, Jesus met them, He's talking about the women, again, right after His resurrection that morning, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings, and they came up and took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. I was talking about the women at the tomb there. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. When Jesus directed the disciples back to this mountain, how could they do anything but worship Him? If you think about this, think about all that has happened. All that has happened in our lives here in, in, in the one week. Easter, the resurrection, and now this Sunday, we're working on this. Think of all that's happened. He's risen Think of all the emotions the disciples would have went through. I mean, They saw Him dragged to the cross and crucified. They saw Him die. They saw Him laid in the tomb, go through the horrific events of the crucifixion. How could they do anything but worship Him? How could anything but that? If you think about, in Revelation 5, verse 9, it talks about the Lamb of God. And you think about this, the slaughtered Lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself now stood before them after everything that had happened and went on. Revelation 5 9 says, This is in Revelation 5 where John is weeping because no one has been, they've found no one in heaven or earth who can open the scroll. And look at verse 9 in Revelation 5. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. I love that word, ransomed. Could you think of kidnapping when you think of ransom? Everyone in this world is held ransom by sin. We're held ransom by it. But the price, the ransom, the debt has been paid by Jesus Christ. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This Jesus, this same Jesus who meant so much to them throughout this earthly ministry here on earth, was stronger than death, and now stood before them here in Galilee. How could anything but... What else would come to your mind but worship at this time? How can we do anything but... And that's the thing that in my life and probably your lives as believers, so many times I think, how can we do anything but worship? You think of all the things we get caught up with and all the directions we go and all the time and money we waste. How can we do anything but worship? The Lamb of God who paid the price for our sin is what we celebrate and we get distracted, don't we? Every direction we go. Every direction but where we should and where we're going to. Now, interestingly, the second part of that verse, but some doubted. Hesitated. Some other, some other versions of the Bible say hesitated. But some doubted question for you, and I don't know the answer to this question, just a question to pose. Were the doubters among the worshipers? And why would there be this doubt or hesitation? I jotted a few things down. Possibly the disciples weren't sure the person they're seeing was the one crucified, was actually actually Jesus. Another reason, possibly they thought they were seeing a vision. You know, there's many miraculous things happen throughout Jesus' ministry. Maybe they were seeing a vision. Another thing, thirdly, maybe they weren't sure that it really was Jesus. Keep in mind, keep this in mind that they were not alone in having difficulty recognizing Jesus two weeks ago, we heard Sean preach on luke twenty four the walk to Emmaus. The two on the road to Emmaus did not recognize him. Another place in the gospel of john verse twenty one chapter twenty one excuse me verse four, the disciples when they were out in the boat and Jesus was on the shore, they did not recognize him. Finally, probably the one of the biggest ones is The disciple Thomas, one of the twelve, he not only doubted, this is found in John 20, verses 24 and 25, but he denied the resurrection when it was told to him. So it's kind of one of those things where the worshippers among how you know, me and my condescending having the the perfect word of God here in front of me, I'm like, How in the world could these guys doubt? You've got to be kidding me. What is the matter with them? But keep in mind, who has perfect faith? Who has perfect faith? That is what we're striving for, but who has that? You think about all that's happened, all the emotions, crucified, dead, buried, all that's going on. And another question is, don't want to presuppose anything into the text there, but could it possibly be that this group could have been larger than 11 by this time? You think about it, when they got this message, the disciples were down here in Gala, in Judea, Excuse me. so they, it took some time for them to get up to Galilee. We don't know, but possibly the word had got out. I mean, I would be excited, wouldn't you? Possibly this was a group larger than just 11. Maybe there was other other people there. We don't know, but the Gospel of Matthew here says some doubted. And for me, I need to be careful not to look down on those on those people. Because like I said, who has perfect faith? That's what we're striving for to achieve, getting closer and closer to Christ. And now as Jesus, in verse 18 we see, And Jesus came to them and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Here is the power aspect of this. All authority. We see the words, and Jesus came. So, either Jesus was right there and got up, or he was possibly a little ways off. But anyways, Jesus came to them, took his position in front of them. I can just, you can just imagine this on that mountainside, wherever they were. I don't know what time of day it was, but Jesus standing there telling, the, telling them these words all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You look at the situation now as opposed to the rest of the previous parts of the gospel. This penniless preacher, if you will, leading this group of rabble-looking disciples around the Judean and Galilean countryside performing miracles, this is what it would look like to the outsider. It is completely changed. It is completely changed from that scene. He is now the resurrected, risen Lord. You look at what we heard last week from the Isaiah 53. We heard in, in verses 3 and 4 of Isaiah that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Those are the words in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. We heard them last week on Easter Sunday. The situation is as far from that at this time as you can possibly imagine. Think about what He went through, how He humbled Himself, took on the cross for us. Took on the cross for us, but now, completely different situation. Now He has the fullest possible authority in heaven and on earth. He, he's making, Jesus is making it very clear here that any limitations, anything put on Him, any limitations He had during His incarnation, when He was here walking on the earth, has been removed, and it is gone. He has authority over the entire universe now. All authority. And notice that word. All authority. All authority. He has complete authority. And it's been given to Him. It shows His deity at this time. shows Christ's deity. All authority has been given to Him. Who gave Him this power? God the Father. So that He may bring glory to God the Father. You see how... We'll get to the Spirit here in a little bit, but these two parts of the deity, God the Father and God the Son, are never in opposition to each other. They fulfill each other. God brought Christ, sent Christ to earth to be incarnated in physical form, to go through the cross to pay the price there has to be we know from, from Hebrews there has to be a sacrifice of blood God is completely perfect He cannot allow anything sinful or imperfect to enter into heaven there had to be a perfect spotless sacrifice and so now we see as Jesus and we know as, as outsiders as Roman soldiers during that day or as, as non-Christians the cross does not seem that glorious does it? what a horrific death Death by, as, as most of you probably know, the way someone died on the cross was through suffocation, arms spread out like this, not being able to lift their lungs to breathe anymore—a horrific death. And the Roman soldiers would drag this as evil, drag this out as long as they possibly could. You know, you've often I've heard I heard one person say one time, "Why wouldn't they just behead him?" Well, because that'd be too simple and humane. We have to drag this out. But through the cross, Christ was glorified because He paid for. Our sins. God gave him this authority. Now, at this time, he had to be humbled. Jesus Christ did. But through his resurrection and his glory, now he's sharing with the disciples all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me by God the Father. So at this time, think of the contrast. Christ has all the authority. Going on to verse 19, this is probably the one that we know the most from this portion of scripture verse 19 go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit because Jesus we just read in verse 18 he has all the authority because he has all of the authority it has been given to him We're now seeing the results of that. Look at what he said. Look at that word. Don't miss the word therefore. If you just take therefore out for just a second. Go and make disciples. That is the command. Go and make disciples. Stick the word therefore back in there. Go therefore. He's bringing therefore back to verse 18. Because I have all the power and authority. And it has been given to me. You go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Therefore leads us into that. This implication to follow him because of who Jesus Christ is and because He has this ultimate authority nothing is going I know this from previous times short term trips to Juarez and different things Very in 2008 and 2010 we went to Juarez, Mexico with Casas Pro Cristo on our short term mission trip with the youth there was a lot of people kind of what are you doing in Juarez there is nothing that can happen to you on this earth outside of the sovereign hand of God nothing nothing you understand that? absolutely nothing It is all under God's... And we're not... You know, you don't take advantage of that or are stupid with that. Go run out in front of a semi. But there's nothing on this earth that can happen to you outside of God's sovereignty. Do we believe that? God is in control of everything. He's in control of everything. Nothing can happen to you outside of what God has ordained or allowed to happen to you. We heard things this morning about cancer. About several heart surgeries another surgery going on this Thursday, and those things. For some reason, God has allowed those things to show His glory and His power. But nothing that happens to you can be outside of His sovereign authority. Now, interesting, if you look back in the original translation, the go and make disciples part, when it's translated, the imperative part, or the, the... wham if you will is on the make disciples you are supposed to make we are supposed to be making disciples in everything we are doing every aspect of our life lived out making disciples living a life that is holy and righteous and pointing others to Jesus Christ and encourage you commit to that how well are you doing with that right now when someone looks at your life do they think Jesus that person loves Jesus lives for Jesus acts like Jesus would I know they're not perfect, but they're trying. Is that what your life tells? Is that the story that it gives? That's what the imperative is on here. Make disciples in that part. Now, another thing that's very interesting. In the first century, a disciple didn't roll, enroll in such and such a school. Let's say Ivy League or something, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, whatever. You didn't enroll in such and such a school, but you went with a certain teacher. A certain You would follow a certain, a certain teacher in those times. So for followers of Jesus Christ, their life is different because of this attachment to Him. And a lot of times in church, in America, west in the Western culture, we like that attachment with the church, with those things. But sometimes we kind of, eh, I don't know if I like any of the other stuff that goes along with it. I like I like church, and I like to come to church on Sunday, but eh, all these other things, you know following Christ living a sinless life being more sanctified that's not so much fun and then this command here go and make disciples of all nations whoa slow down not into that at all wait a minute here we like comfortability we like safety we like those type of things but Jesus said go and the comfort in that is back in verse 18 all authority has been given to me he has all the authority So how can we not listen to what he has to say? Now the interesting part of 18 there, of all nations, this points to a worldwide scope of missions. We see that that it started with his ministry in Jerusalem and is now to be a proclamation of the gospel throughout the world. You think about this, it's hard for us to imagine this nowadays, but his disciples in in those days, I'm sure one or more of them thought on that mountainside was thinking, even to the Gentiles, really? Well, he just said, "You know, I could, I could see him just imagine them whispering amongst of all nations." Yeah, that means everybody, but even the Gentiles. Keep in mind, the Jews very a very strict sect. Praise God, it went. The gospel went through Paul to the Gentiles. Amen. That's where all of us come in. That's where all of us come in. Now. The last part of 18, of 19, excuse me. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. A few questions kind of formulate here. When you think of baptism, who do you think of? Most of the time we think of John the Baptist, don't we? Jesus never, never really baptized. But it wasn't really a big part of his ministry. So why is it in there? Baptism, what is baptism? Sometimes people can get very caught up with Baptism. Whether you are supposed to just sprinkle, or pour, or completely immerse, or, believe me, it doesn't make any difference how someone is baptized. What is important in baptism is what's going on on the inside. Amen? The important that there is a change, an inner change, that reflects in an outside life. Very interesting that Jesus put that in there baptizing them, because we more associate that with John the Baptist, but Jesus commanded it here, and we know the Bible is the inerrant word of God, there's no errors in it, so baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, another interesting thing here, this is one of the first places where you see the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all three, Christ speaks of this here, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each of them working together, doing their part, to save. To save. And to expand the gospel. This is the thing that... Not not to be con- condemning of anyone, but if this is not... if And I'm not talking about everyone in this church having to go to Africa or China or Yemen or wherever, but if spreading the gospel is not at the core of who you are as a Christian, what else... Is there? Really? Is there anything? If there... Seriously. I love you all very much, but if, if spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ is not at your very center, what else is there? Why are we here? Why is there a church? That's the thing in our life. It has to be... It has to be just a driving desire that you want that person that you work with to know Jesus Christ. That you want that person you go to school with to know Jesus Christ. That you want that family member that doesn't know Jesus Christ to know Jesus Christ and to live as Christ lived. I think of, think of that, those verses. You've spent enough time in the past living as the world lived. It's time to take the gospel and to take it and to go with it and to live a life as Jesus Christ lived and how He lived meant for us as believers to live because the first thing when, you, when we are done with the sermon should not be talking about the ball game or the race last night or this or that or whatever else should it what should be central in our heart Christ Jesus Christ and him crucified the only reason we're here the only reason we sh- gather together that's, that's it to glorify him To glorify Christ and to live that way. The last verse, verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Let's stop right there with just the first part of that verse for a second. Teaching them to command, teaching them to observe, excuse me, all that I have commanded you. Teaching is a way that the followers of Christ are continually transformed or changed in order to be more and more like Jesus. It comes through teaching. Teaching. The, the church, the teaching function of the church is vitally important. We teach because Jesus commanded us to teach. Right here we see it in verse, in verse 20. We can't lessen or diminish the importance of something that owes its commandment to Jesus himself. He commanded this. He commanded these things. And notice the word observe that Christ uses. He's stressing the importance of a way of life. You'll notice I titled the the sermon, Go and Tell. We are supposed to live a life that is godly for people to observe and for people to see how we live. But, how often do we tell people? How often do we verbally speak the gospel? Tell people. One of the things that's very interesting, um, if you've checked out your Mennonite history, as the Mennonites came, were, lived in Europe and came over here to America, the Mennonites were known as the quiet in the land." That's the, that's the term, because they lived their life quietly, not getting involved in politics, these type of things, lived a quiet life, a quiet, a quiet existence, you know, not causing trouble, but just quietly. I kind of disagree with that, because we should be actively wanting to tell others. And not sitting comfortably, just existing, but actively telling others of the gospel. Not just by the way we live, by the words we speak. So that both of them come together. We know there, there can be a vicious, vicious offshoot if how we live doesn't match what we say. Or what we say, if we're preaching Christ and talking about Jesus and we're living out in the world, a sinful, heathen life. It doesn't go together. That's why Jesus, in those words, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. As we see throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus constantly tells his followers to live in a manner that is pleasing to God. If you'll notice, Jesus always came against legalism and letter of the law religion. Very much against those. We see those in the life of the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those type of lives lived like that. Jesus was completely against that. He was more into a life that came from the heart going out The second part of that, all that I have commanded you. Here again, we see the word all in these short verses. The first time was in verse 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And here in verse 20, teaching them to obey, observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus isn't saying that we're to pick and choose what we want to teach and what we want to live by and what we want to do. He's saying all of it, every bit of it. Every bit of it into our lives, into our being. We need to look at His teaching as a unified whole. What Christ taught here on earth was a whole, was a unit. None of it contradicted itself. None of it came in violation with itself. But it all flows together in every aspect, just like the entire Bible flows together. We see how Isaiah ties in with Matthew, ties in with Revelation. It's all It all paints a story. We tend to pick and choose things out sometimes. It all flows together. Disciples of Christ are to observe all that He commanded us. Every bit of it. In the last part of verse 20, in closing here, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here's the presence part of things. Behold, I am with you always to the very end end of the age. The final promise, the final thing we have here in Matthew, is the promise of Jesus' presence with us. So Christ, he concludes, or he he ends his commission with this, always and to the end of the age. He is with us always and to the end of the age. Keep in mind, Jesus' time means absolutely nothing to God. He operates completely outside of time. April fifteenth, two thousand 2012, 1025, means nothing to him. Okay, he's completely outside of that. So these words here, when he says, to the end of the age, the end of our age, eternity, we know, is never going to end. So he's with us, basically covers it all, doesn't it? He is with us always. The text doesn't say, you know, notice, I am with you. I am with you. It doesn't say, I will be with you. Or it doesn't set a time limit, or anything like that. He speaks from an eternal point of view, an eternality where no specific there's no specific distinctions. It doesn't exist there with him. A follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Christ, is not going to be left to serve, okay, as well as he or she can. But rather, they will find that they have. A great companion who goes through life with them all the time. I've always talked about this before. How do you get through a funeral without Jesus Christ? I uh, heard a story this week about a, a man. He shared about a, uh, a student of his who had a son who had cystic fibrosis. And was, the son was, at about six years old, he was getting to realize that he's not like other kids. And the father told him, he said, you, know, he said, you have a, yes, he said, you are going to die sooner than most children, and there's nothing that I can do to help you. Nothing I can do to fix that. And boy, understood. And they, he said he started reading the gospel, and this this father shared with the speaker there. He said, "You know, my desire is for him to be born again, rather than for him to live." And how can anybody? How can you, as a father, as a human father, you can't say that without Jesus Christ. Without knowing, there is more to this. There is more than just this present age. There is an eternity. And this is why this command is here. Go and tell. Because there are people that you come in contact with every day who don't know Jesus Christ. And will spend an eternity in hell. Without the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We don't hear that much either. There is a hell. It is very real. Blackness. Torment. Forever and ever and ever. Ever unimaginable for those that do not know Jesus Christ. I want to point out one thing. If you turn to Matthew, you don't have to turn there, but chapter 1 verse 23. We see that Matthew opened up this gospel saying that God was with his people, Emmanuel. He called this is at the uh, at the beginning of Matthew. And he closes with this promise that the presence of Christ will never be lacking in the life Of a faithful disciple. He might take you through trials. He might take you through trouble. He might take you through things that. A lot of other people won't have to go through. But he's promised. That he will be with you. To the end. Till the very end. And notice another thing. Very interesting. As we close here. With Matthew. Matthew has no account of the ascension. Matthew gives no account of Jesus being raised up to heaven. It's like teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of this age. And it doesn't give an account of Christ going up into heaven. And kind of, I think Matthew does that on purpose, to seal this, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Christ will never leave you. The key that I think we should take from this, as we go, how does this... How does the implications of this happen to the church nowadays? I've got four implications. I wrote these down from one of the speakers uh, we heard this week. Josh shared about him, David Platt. Wonderful message he gave. He gave four things. I just want to share them with you right now. Lead the church to pray confidently for each people group, for every people group. Keep in mind, eight, seven billion people, two billion unreached. We have a map out there. I'd encourage you, if you've already signed up, Praise the Lord, keep praying and doing that. If you haven't, I'd encourage you to do that. There's two billion people in this world today who do not know Jesus Christ. The church needs to be praying for that. If you know from Matthew 24 14, I want to point out something to you real quick. Jesus is talking to his disciples about the end of the age. Matthew 24 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Very simply, Christ has not returned yet. The gospel has not been proclaimed to all nations yet. It has not happened. How do we, how does providence take an active role in doing that? Second thing, lead our churches, he said, to give sacrificially. Psalm 67 talks about that. Sacrificial giving. Whereas comfortability and lifestyle are centralized around the gospel psalm sixty seven is the uh, is the scripture text he gave for that. The third let us lead our churches to go intentionally to the unreached peoples to go intentionally and he talks here about combining short term missions long term missions disciple making things like that. Lead people to go intentionally. We talked about that the guys that I was uh, rooming with afterward we got to talking about that about how how the youth how we have you know fundraisers for things and going and it's like as a congregation, should we you know, should we always have to have a fundraiser? Just, a, just an idea. A, a gentleman I know who was raised, this is interesting, who was raised Amish, was raised Amish, not Amish anymore, really disdains, I don't want to step on anybody's toes here, but disdains the fundraisers and the things at Dinkies. And this is what he said. He said, why should I have to get something if someone else has a need? Why can't I just give? Why do I have to receive something? Wonderful point. I was like, wow, wow, very true. We're so caught up with fundraising and this and that. Well, they need to show that, yeah, you know, we've all been blessed beyond measure. Third thing, go intentionally. Number four, let us lead our churches to die willingly for the sake of the gospel globally. If it means physical death, so be it. That's what he shared. But also, die to we have things that we die to our lifestyle, die to... Retirement and easy life, income, those things and that. Sometimes those things have to be laid aside. Family. Family is one of the best things we have in the Mennonite church. It can get in the way sometimes because we're so... We can't go anywhere because family. You think of what Jesus says about that. It goes pretty sharply. Unless you hate your father and mother, and He doesn't. We know what He means. That's another verse for another time. But to go to share, to live the gospel out. Let's pray. Dear Father God, I just pray that you'd help us as a church to be a church that that sees the need, dear Lord, that sees what is going on in the world and, and wants to go and wants to share, wants to be a church that actively is, is a mission. Dear God, you started this church 50, 60 years ago as a mission church on the west end of Washington, dear Lord. That's how you started Providence Mennonite Church. I just pray that this church, would we would take the vision, the vision of missions, of taking the gospel actively to unreached peoples, to peoples across the globe, to peoples in Montgomery, in Washington, in Odin, in Ligoti, in Davies County. There are people that do not know the gospel. And dear Lord, I pray that we would trust you. You are with us. It's your last promise there in verse 20. You are with us always to the very end of the age your God. Be with us. Help us to think of your things. Help us to think your thoughts. Help us to live as you lived. Help us to love as you loved. Help us to go, dear Lord, and as you commanded, go and make disciples. Just thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your promises that you've given us, dear God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.